You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, there you go. There's like one word already that's just keep coming up and coming up. Grace, grace, God's grace over and over and over again. So I think everybody knows that the world needs to change. Just going to start a little heavy this morning. I think everybody knows the world needs to change. But here's something I've noticed is most of us or many people turn the arrow out there and we say things like, man, if only they, or man, if that person would, or Lord, change them, fix them, or maybe boldly remove them. (laughs) We point the arrow out there, but from the moment he stepped off of the boat onto the dock and started walking through the marbled streets of Ephesus, the Apostle Paul knew one truth that Many people never really understand, and it's this, that our world can never be changed by talented people. The world can never be changed by smart people. The world will never be changed by charismatic people, significant people, or successful people. The world will only ever be changed by changed people. So if you need to know where we're going, here it is. Before we'll ever see change for Christ, we need to be changed by Christ. Christ. And I'm just going to leave that there for just a moment. So welcome to week one of our summer teaching series through Ephesians. For the next 13 weeks, we're going to be doing a really deep dive into verse by glorious verse of this book, a book that invites us to be changed by Christ so that we can see change for Christ. If New Testament books were drinks on the Starbucks menu, I think that Ephesians is like that quad shot, like nitro cold brew with like eight pumps of caramel in it. It's really strong. It's really potent. Rocket fuel laid over six chapters. But my favorite words about the book of Ephesians or the letter to the church of Ephesus are actually a little bit more lyrical. They come from the Scottish theologian named John McKay. He was a missionary and a writer. Here's what John McKay says about Ephesians in his beautiful Presbyterian prose. He says this, to this book I owe my life. He describes an experience as a boy. He says, reading a boyish rapture in the highland hills and made a passionate protestation to Jesus Christ among the rocks in the starlight. What a wonderful experience with the word of the Lord on a receptive soul. He continues, he says, I saw a new world. Everything was new. I had a new outlook, new experiences, new attitudes toward other people. I loved God. Jesus Christ became the center of everything. I had been quickened. I was really alive. And then musing on how Ephesians might fit into our modern world. Listen to this. This letter is pure music. What we read here is truth that sings. Oh, what a great phrase that is. Doctrine set to music as the apostle proclaimed God's order in an era which was marked by the process of social disintegration. So Ephesians is today the most contemporary book in the Bible. And then he says this, 
just nails it. It promises community in a world of disunity, reconciliation in place of alienation, and peace instead of war. That, that is why we are doing this series. Doesn't that sound so good? And doesn't it sound so much like what 2023 needs? I'll read them again. Community in a world of disunity, reconciliation, place of alienation, and peace instead of war. 13 weeks together, I cannot wait. So before we get to the text, though, I thought it might be good to do a little bit of history because we're jumping into a city called Ephesus. So let's back up a little bit in history. Jesus finds Paul on the Damascus Road in 34 AD. More on that in a minute. And from there, Paul almost immediately starts making disciples and planting churches. And his ministry spreads across the world at that time like wildfire. And he lands in Ephesus about 52 AD, so there's about a 20-year gap or so. And here's the first thing that he would have seen walking into Ephesus. This is a theater. 25,000 people would sit in the theater in Ephesus. It's what Ephesus was known for. 25,000 people. This is one of the wonders of the ancient world. Walking around the theater, you can get a better view of it. You got this giant floor. Here it's in the process of being rehabbed. Keep going. This thing is enormous. You can see the mountains in the background. Here's a shot from the top. You can see the road that would have led down to the harbor that's now silted in over time. Mountains on either side. Ephesus was situated in a valley. We're going to talk more about the mountains next week. And then here's the view that I like the most from the very top. Just this giant sweeping thing. Man, if you're like a city designer, you're going, that's where I want to put my theater. There's a story. We're going to look at this picture for a minute. Most of you guys might know the story in the book of Acts that happened in this theater where Paul, because he's preaching Jesus, offends a lot of people in this town, particularly a silversmith who made little statues of the Ephesian god Artemis, and he sold them. And Paul starts preaching about Jesus. People start following Jesus. Demetrius is the name of this silversmith. He's a little upset about it because Jesus means no Artemis. No Artemis means no statues, and no statues means no sales. And so a riot starts all throughout the city, And Paul is almost dragged into this theater with his ministry colleagues and friends. This is that theater. That's the stage. That's where he would have been dragged into. Eventually the riot breaks up, though, and the whole city kind of side-eyes Paul for a little while. They're not sure who this guy is. If you walk out of the theater, though, here's the next thing you're going to see. This is the Agora. It's the main shopping area. Think about it like a giant outdoor mall. There would have been shops on either side. There would have been vendors calling out for your attention. This is the library of Celsus, largest library in the world, save for the library of Alexandria in Egypt. It held more scrolls than any other library except Egypt. Looking up to the roof, you can see how ornate the work is inside. This is a proud city. They get it. They know what beauty is supposed to be. We're going to talk more about that next week. This is a city that cared about things like civic development. This is a city that knew who they were, and they were just going for it. This is where the Apostle Paul would have walked. If you turn out of the library, you're going to look up the street. This is called Curitz Street, and there's a slight incline to it. Again, there would have been shops on either side. You see the remains of these giant marble columns. Ephesus was a tourist destination. At the top of the street, 
Here's a view looking back to the library. A modern artist's rendition thinks that it looks like something like this. Next one. There you go. Oh, there we go. This is looking back down the street again. <laughs> Keep moving up the hill. There we go. That's that big view. You see the statue off to the side. All these columns, statues of Greek gods and goddesses all throughout the city. Here's the modern artist's rendition. Probably would have looked something like that. Can you imagine walking down a street like that? This is Paul's Ephesus. It would have looked very, very similar. If you keep moving, though, you get to a darker part of the city. Up to the top on the north, the first thing you're going to see is you're going to come to a smaller theater. It's called the Odeon. It was the first theater that was probably built in Ephesus. This is where small stage plays and small public orations would have been given, small speeches. Right next to the Odeon is another facility. Kind of up and to the right. Just past the Odeon, you're going to see something that historians believe is a brothel. It looks like that. One of the first things that you do as a tourist in Ephesus to pay homage to the Greek goddess Artemis was to have sex with a temple prostitute. The temple of Artemis, the temple of Demeter, all of, there was four or five major temples in this progressive, crazy, big, awesome city. Like every city, it had a dark side. These are the things that Paul talks about. Could you imagine being a Christian in this city? Could you imagine growing up? Could you imagine trying to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ in this city? Let's go back to the picture of the theater again. I want you to see this. Paul stays in Ephesus for two more years. This is the longest that Paul will stay in any one place. He preaches Jesus, builds up leaders, plants a church. Within two years, the church is planted, and Paul hands over the keys, and he moves on. Because that's what Paul does. He's a church planter. Ten years go by. Paul moves on to other cities, preaching Jesus, building leaders, planting churches, until his boldness for Christ lands Paul under house arrest in Rome. And so ten years later, thousand miles away, sensing his own death, Paul sends a letter back to this church. And so this morning, we're going to be in the first two verses of the letter. Just two verses. Just two. Two verses where, characteristic of the entire letter, <laughs> Paul doesn't waste a word. Instead, Paul strategically shoehorns a dump truck load of theology into the subject line of an email. Because <laughs> that's what Paul does. Paul, this intro that he gives us, breaks up into three Chunks, and we're going to look at all three of them, and then we're going to bring it all together. In the first part, Paul talks about how he sees himself. He talks about that. How does he see himself as somebody who's been redeemed by the grace of this wonderful, gracious, merciful God? How does he see himself? The second part that we're going to look at this morning is how he sees others. A little spoiler alert. Until you see others or yourself rightly, you're probably not going to see others rightly. <laughs> Get to that in a minute. And then lastly, how he blesses others. What does he say? How does Paul look out into his world and say, gosh, I want to be a blessing. I want to encourage people. I want to use my words to glorify the God who changed me. So how he sees himself, how he sees others, and then how he blesses others. So with the historical context laid out behind us, 
the cultural context underneath us, and the wide pool of this letter out in front of us. Let's dive in together. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. You can turn there, flip there, scroll there, or follow along on the screens behind me. Here's the first part. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We're going to stop there for just a second. Think how these words must have landed on the Ephesians' anxious hearts. After not hearing from Paul, presumably, for almost a decade, their pastor, their friend. This style of greeting was really customary in the ancient world. It was a name followed by someone's occupation. So who you are and then kind of what you did. First detail that I want us to see is Paul, an apostle. An apostle. We don't use that word a lot. This means somebody who has... Seeing the risen Christ. That's what you need to have to be an apostle. But the word actually means something deeper than that. It's an old word. It predates Paul by a couple hundred years. And in secular Greek, the word apostle comes from the seafaring trade. It's a shipping term. Here's what it means. Ship owners would fill their ships with precious cargo, and then they apostolosed them over the Mediterranean. They sent them. And so at its core, apostle means a sent one, someone who sent. These ships were super important, obviously. Their cargo was very important, obviously. But they weren't important because of the ships themselves. They were important because of who sent them. What they carried and who they represented. Something valuable in the hold of this ship was sent by someone very important. Let's stay here for just a minute. The Greeks actually had two other words that Paul could have used to describe himself. And these other two words may be what we would have expected. The first word is a Greek word called presbytes, and all that means is an ambassador. An ambassador. Now, when I say ambassador, you probably picture like a government official, nice suit, right? Usually like they're pretty a stately individual. Kind of maybe dressed up a little bit. They carry themselves with a little bit of an authority. Rightly so. Presbytes is an ambassador. Someone who kind of looks to their own ability to leverage authority. But that's not the word that he uses here. Second word that he could have used is a word called angelos. Sounds like angel. It's the same word. And it means messenger. The emphasis of this word is more on the content of the message that was being delivered. So if the, the first word that he could have used, but didn't, reflects himself. The second word, angelos, or angel, messenger, reflects on the content of the word. Why does he use the word apostolos as a sent one? Why do that? By defining himself as a sent one, Paul's doing three things. First, he's taking the attention off himself. He's just saying, look, I'm just the ship. That's all I am. I'm just the one that has been sent across. He's pointing to the value of what he's carrying, precious cargo. But more importantly, he directs the Ephesians' attention to the one who sent him. This is Paul just saying, I'm a ship. That's all I am. I've got great stuff to unload. I've got a message to share. But the most important thing you need to know about me is not me at all. The most important thing you need to know about me is the importance of the one who sent me. 
So tell us, Paul, who sent you? And here it is again. Second detail we need to see. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's that second phrase. Describes himself as belonging to Christ Jesus. We should see this statement as a statement of identification, of ownership, and ultimately authority. This is the branded owner's mark on the stern of the ship. This is the irrevocable passion in the apostle's soul. Paul doesn't belong himself. He didn't send himself. If you remember his story, he was quite content killing Christians in a previous life, right? He's not out for himself. He's just the ship bearing precious cargo sent by a very precious Savior. Thinking back to his first encounter with Jesus, some of you know the story. This comes out of Acts 26, and you can write this down in the margins of your Bible or in your journal. I want to read this together. Acts 26, you can follow along. Here's Paul's story. He's recounting his first encounter with the risen Christ. He says this, at midday, O king, he's talking to a king in front of him, says this, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, his first name then, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads, which just means, why are you trying so hard to do something that ain't going to (laughs) work? And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. And then here is Paul's MO. Here's what he's going to spend the rest of his life doing. Wouldn't you love to have a crystal clear job description from the Lord Jesus? This is how Jesus tells Paul what to do. Here's what he says. For this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is Paul's first encounter with Christ and why his life reverberates forever with this level of passion. Do you hear the overtones of the gospel in there? This is just good gospel message. Jesus sends Paul to open eyes. How many of you know we live in a blind world? So that we may turn from darkness to life. To light. How many of you know that we live in a really confused world? From the power of Satan to God, how many of you know that we live in a pretty deceived world? That they may receive, number one, the forgiveness of sins. How many of you know that we live in a world that is fueled and filled with shame? And two, a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. How many of you know that we live in a lost world? So in the years since this knock-you-off-your-feet Damascus Road experience, Paul's calling hasn't changed any at all. He's still doing it. But then there's the question, well, how should we receive your words, Paul? Because we hear a lot of teachers in Ephesus. We've got our theaters, we've got our drama, we've got our orators, we've got our professional communicators. So what makes you any different, Paul? Go back to verse 1. Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then he says this. He says, by the will of God. Holy smokes. Like, I get leading with confidence, but this is like next level. So this last week, it's like Tuesday morning. I was out in our front yard, and the dogs were doing their thing, what dogs do in the morning. Okay? And I'm sitting there just kind of minding my own business, and up my sidewalk walks this dude in like a neon pink polo shirt. And what are, what is this about? And then it clicked. I'm like, oh, it's mosquito prevention selling season. Okay, we're about to have a conversation. And like all the social cues like start ticking on in my brain because I know where this is going. So he comes up and he says like, hi. Uh, you know, he gives me his like sales pitch and he's selling mosquito prevention. And I'm thinking about this and like, yeah, it really would be great to have like no mosquitoes in my yard all summer. But I also know like there is no way that I'm going to be able to do this. And so I have to figure out how to let him down gently, you know. And so eventually, like, I declined and, and ended up having a gracious conversation. But here's the point. We are exposed to sales pitches all the time, right? And if you sell mosquito repellent, I'm sorry if I just offended you. And you're... We, sell, we hear sales pitches all the time, but what we don't hear is, Hi, my name is Corey. I'm from Bug Off, and I'm in your front yard by the will of God. Like, holy smokes. <laughs> Nobody says that. And I don't know, maybe if somebody did, I'd be like, okay, maybe I do need to consider this thing. This is, this is more than dollars, right? It's been a really long day. Like, you really want to make that quota? Okay, let me help you out. So why the strong hand, Paul? Like, why the heavy hand? Why does he say that? Paul wants the Ephesians to understand that his ministry comes from God, not from himself. He's not like any other orator. Theologian and author John Stott puts it like this. I think this is a great way of looking at this. He says, we must not regard the author of Ephesians neither as a private individual who's ventilating his personal opinions, nor as a gifted but fallible human teacher, which, like, by the way, most pastors fall into one of those two categories or sometimes both, nor even the church's greatest missionary hero. He's not really any of these things. Here's how we should hear him but as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and therefore as a teacher whose authority is precisely the authority of Jesus Christ himself, in whose name and by whose inspiration he writes. That's what separates the words of the Apostle Paul from the words of Brandon Marshall. Another commentator says this, the, the apostle has attained his high office neither through aspiration nor through usurpation, not through nomination by other men, but by divine preparation. It's a great insight. Paul seems content to hide behind God's authority, like the way like a three-year-old toddler hide behind his dad's leg. <laughs> This is actually a pretty common thing for Paul. All over the New Testament, Paul seems almost over-eager to celebrate who he's not. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, here's what he says to the Corinthians. He says, For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. When he talks to the Galatians, here's what he says in Galatians 1, 13. He says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and sought to destroy it. He continues, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. I was so extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. Writing to his young protege, Timothy. This 
probably is the one to me that sticks the most. He says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, here's what he says. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He continues one more. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, meaning foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Why does Paul do all this? What's the point? Self-made men and women don't need God. If you are trying to become a self-made man or a self-made woman, you don't need the Lord. Christianity is not about what I bring to the table. God is not interested in saving the saint that you pretend to be. He's only interested in saving the sinner that you actually are. God is not interested in helping you become a better version of yourself. God is only interested in making you completely new on his own into somebody completely new. So let's back up and see these descriptions again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. Whatever else you can say about Paul, he is not a self-made man. These three descriptors kind of send me inward and asking me in my own thought life, How do I describe myself? How do I think about myself? How do I introduce myself to others? Whose cause am I really championing? Who do I lean on for my identity? Where do I find my security? These are questions, church, that we have to ask. Here's why I bother to bring it all up. You have a choice in your life. You can lean on your own accomplishments or you can lean on Christ's accomplishments for you. Those three descriptors, apostle, Christ Jesus, by the will of God. This is Paul saying what we sing all the time. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, nor wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I can't give an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Or if you want to put it in a little statement, goes like this. Before we'll ever see change for Christ, we need to be changed by Christ. Turns out, though, Jesus' ability to change a life isn't limited to just how Paul sees himself. It's also extended to how Paul sees other people. And so let's continue. Second chunk of this, back to verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ. Jesus. How does Paul describe the church? Believers, those who follow Jesus. These two words should leap off the page. First he says to the saints who are in Ephesus, and then he calls them faithful. Just get on this one. This one is so hard to sit with for me. Saints and faithful. Sit with those words for a minute. When you think of the word church, when you look around, and when you look in, when you look at the person next to you, saint and faithful. 
So let's take these two words one at a time. First, saints. Saints means holy ones. It means set apart. That's what that word means. It means different ones. And if you're like me, your imagination immediately and unconsciously does two things. First, it brings to mind stoic stone statues standing in quiet corners of cathedrals, right? You got that image in your head? That's what I think of when I hear the word saint. But then because of that, it puts distance between me and these believers. Because when I hear the word saints, when I think about what a saint means, I have this immediate reaction in me that goes, not you. Anybody else feel that one? Like, I may be okay, but I'm not a saint. Don't call me that. Hmm. Good news, saint does not mean some kind of spiritual elite. Paul does not have in mind here some minority of exceptionally holy Christians. He doesn't have in mind people who by their own merit have earned like a special slice of God's favor. Whenever you're reading your Bible and you come across the word saint, it never, ever, 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 ever ties back to the effort of a person. It never, ever, 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 ever ties back to a special set of super spiritual people. It never describes a select few. And so we got to do the Yoda thing again. We have to unlearn what we have learned. What does saint actually mean? If that's not what he means, what does it mean? Here's the truth. That was a really bad Yoda impression. I'll get better, I promise. Here's what he's talking about. He's talking about normal believers. He's talking about you if you're in Christ. It kind of begs the question, how is that even possible? How do you go from sinner to saint? Instantly? Yeah. Immediately? Yeah. Well, don't I have to do anything? No. Hold on. Sit with that question for a second. We're going to come back to it. Because we've got to look at the second word. Faithful. He says, faithful. Now, this one's even harder to wrap my head around because I am not faithful. I am so not faithful. I've got a front row seat to my own depravity, and it's terrible. Every time I indulge a sinful thought, every time I take my eyes off Jesus, every time I resurrect a part of a dead past, every time I follow a selfish desire, I hear the lie of the enemy sing his chorus of condemnation in my head. Faithful? You? Since when? Faithful? Who are you kidding? Like, who do you think you are? Faithful? More like faithless. That's me. Come on, be realistic, Brandon. And I only mention that because I don't think I'm alone in hearing that word from our enemy. You know that voice too because he whispers to you the same way. Here's why we are uncomfortable with words like saint and faithful. We are more familiar with our failures than Christ's successes. In short, we just forget the gospel. When I hear holy one, faithful, and I imagine myself, we, okay, I, (laughs) almost immediately and unconsciously feel my unworthiness rise up to object. Brandon, holy and faithful, Sure, but then my flesh raises a finger and says, I object, and as evidence, I present Brannon's impatience. I object, and as evidence, I present Brannon's anger. I object, and as evidence, I present Brannon's insecurities. I object, and as evidence, I present Brannon's whatever, insert sin here. We are way more familiar with our failures than we are with Christ's successes. 
Whenever I allow what I've done to speak louder than what Christ has done, whenever I look to what I haven't accomplished rather than what Christ has accomplished, whenever I allow myself to be defined by my overwhelming unrighteousness, which if you're like me is always right in front of your face, then be defined by Christ's righteousness, which again, if you're like me, is always so much harder to see and believe. But here's why those two words of Paul ring so loudly, sing so clearly, and lifted up so beautifully. This wonderful gospel truth that the gospel invites us, you and me, to believe the unbelievable, that in Christ we are not defined by our failures in sin, but by Jesus' success over sin. That in Christ, we, as very guilty sinners, toss our achievements and take Christ's achievement. That in Christ, we are beggars at the foot of God's door, and for some strange reason, he warmly welcomes us in. That in Christ, the things that you want to hide are the same things that Jesus runs toward to redeem and to celebrate. That in Christ, your past is never leveraged as evidence against you because it isn't even remembered about you. That in Christ, we, the prodigal children, are not welcomed home begrudgingly to the dour, dismal, disapproving look of a disappointed father, but rather our good, loving, gracious father runs down the road to meet us and cries because he's hugging us so tightly because he's so glad that we're home. The gospel says that you are not defined by your feelings, by your failures, or by your fears. Instead, your identity rests on the surety of the gospel. That if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 What we said earlier, Galatians 2.20, you've been crucified with Christ. You no longer live. Christ lives within you. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Now, here's why we bring all this up and why it's so important to stop at this, like, half of the first verse in the letter. I believe most people, including a great many Christians, imagine that when God thinks about you, that his face is set in a scowl that you have somehow disappointed him. And that even as Christians, he stands ready to scold you and he probably doesn't even like you. No, 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 no. No. Because here's the gospel. In my sin, yes, I stood condemned, but in my Savior, I stand free. And we're going to get to the third part of this introduction. Before we do, here's what I want us to see. By starting out his letter like this, Paul wants to make one thing abundantly clear. Ephesian church, I'm about to write six more chapters to you, but before I get any of that, the only reason I am who I am and the only reason you are who you are is because of one reason, Christ alone. Before we'll ever see change for Christ, we need to be changed by Christ. And so having talked about himself and talked about the Ephesians, now he says his first words to them. And here's the third move for this morning. Here's what he says, Ephesians 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we take a second and just sit with how refreshing those words sound? Grace, the love of God that I know I do not deserve. And Paul wants to put it right in front of my face. Peace, the effect of swimming in that love to the point where nothing in this world can touch me. That's what Paul wants them to see. Grace and peace. And he puts it right there. These two words are like curtains that hang over the entire book. In chapter 2, where we'll be in a couple of weeks, he'll talk about how we've been saved by grace. And then he'll move on to talk about how natural enemies in this world, in the gospel, can be brought together in peace. Chapter 4, we're given gifts of the Spirit by grace. In chapter 6, the gospel is called the good news of peace. These two words, grace and peace, are what this entire book is about. The entire book in miniature. But don't miss the link between the author, the readers, and the message. What do they share in common? And it's right there in the text. The Lord Jesus Christ. This isn't just like peace like peace. This is a person. This isn't just good vibes. This is a really good savior. Peering into the darkness of their world, pantheistic gods on every street corner, hopelessness reigning and hopefulness fading, Paul gets half a sentence in and he's already pointing the spotlight at the one person who makes it all possible, Jesus. Grace and peace, how is that possible? Answer, Christ alone. I want to talk like that, don't you? I want to offer worlds of light or words of life in a world of death and decay, don't you? I want to say good words. I want to speak grace in a graceless world. I want to proclaim peace in a restless world, don't you? Sure you do. Hope you do. Here's the connection I want us to see, though. Paul can only offer these words to others because of what he's received from God. Before we will ever see change for Christ, we need to be changed by Christ. And so let me do my best to make this stick, and then we're going to wrap up. I want to wrap up our morning by asking one question, just one, but it's a pretty big one. Have you ever invited Jesus to change you? And I don't mean, Jesus, help me get a little bit better. I mean, Jesus, make me new. I don't mean, Jesus, help me do what I want to do just a little bit better. I mean, Jesus, maybe what I want to do isn't even right, and so would you take my life and remake me? I'm not talking about simple recalibration. I'm talking about total redefinition. Like we said last week, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. And so have you ever bowed your head, bent your knee, confessed your sin, and simply said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I need you. Fix me. Before we'll ever see change for Christ, we need to be changed by Christ. I'm excited for this long walk through Ephesians together this summer. You are one-thirteenth of the way through it. It's a loaded two verses. I want to invite the band to come on back out. And again, we, the reason we close in song, I think it's good to talk about this. 
The reason we close in song the way that we do and the reason behind all of this isn't just because it's a nice like end to a service or like, well, you got to do something, so I can't just say, well, see ya. This does create this little bit of a space where I've just been hitting your head a lot with some stuff, okay? I've said a lot to you, and hopefully God's spirit has moved through his word to your heart. There's a space now, though, that we want to have where Maybe the Lord needs to deal with you personally, and maybe you need to deal with him in a way that just is a little bit less heady, a little more heart. And so as the band plays, um, a couple of things. I do want to encourage you to stand and worship, which we will. But also, maybe there's something you need to do. You just need to talk to somebody. We have these red tables in the back, and the reason we put those tables there is we know we come into this space with a lot of junk. <laughs> We come into this space with a lot of things that need dealt with. And so if you're just going, I just need somebody to pray with me. I need somebody to just talk to you. I need to unload some stuff. That's what those are for. And so during this song, while everyone's standing and singing, maybe you want to just take a few steps and head back there and just pray with somebody. Have you ever invited Jesus to change you? Has that ever happened for you? If not, why not make that today? You have nothing to lose and absolutely everything to gain. Your life will be completely redefined by the Savior. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, again, we praise you for your grace. We just say thank you, thank you, thank you so much for this grace that we don't deserve, this grace we could never earn. I want to say that we love you. And so for those that are here that are saved, that have prayed that prayer and have reached out and accepted that free gift, Lord, Would you cause that fire to burn in our hearts and help us to be more and more thankful for the gifts that you've already given. For those here that maybe that's a question mark and are going, ah, I never did that or I don't know. God, would you cause by your spirit in their heart in these moments, just a a movement. Maybe it's just a quick turn where they could, for the first time, believe that they are loved by you and that you have given your son on the cross in payment for sin to have hell canceled and heaven guaranteed. And life could move from purposelessness to purposefulness. Lord, we give you these moments. Work in this space. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, It goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.